You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. Well, welcome to to Life Community Church. Um, Always a, a tough transition to go from that to this, but we're glad that you're here. My name is Steve Serbo. I'm the lead pastor here, and we say this every week, we want to be a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ, and and we have values that we strive for. We strive to practice love with everyone always, to give more than what makes sense, to chase after the likeness of Christ in every corner of our lives, and to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word. That's who we are. That's what we want to be. That's where we're headed. Um, When you came in, you got a a little bulletin on the bottom of that bulletin. It's a connection card. Love to get to know you. If you're new here and answer any questions that you have, again, just a great way if you're a regular attender here to keep us updated on prayer requests and things that we can care for you in. Uh, Just one kind of announcement on the back just want to throw out to you. We have a bowling party every year. Last year, we took up the entire bowling center, and so we had to actually turn people away. And so uh, we want you to, to look in your bulletin, look at the details. We're running things a little bit differently this year, so we don't run into some of those problems. So please make sure that you're informed. Well, let's head into Job today, and I'll be honest, uh, we may take a detour here that we may get back to Job, we may not. Uh, God certainly felt like there was some things that I needed to talk about this week, and so we'll just kind of start there and see where we land this week. Uh, When I was in college, uh, one of the classes that I took was a class named Logic Theory, Uh, and it's, it was the theory of logic. It literally was about breaking down arguments into their parts to understand the validity of that argument. And then you would take those arguments and you would classify them into terms like deductive or inductive or cogent or weak. Uh, I don't know. It was well over my head. It was, it was literally the hardest class I've ever took in my life. I, I'll let you know in transparency, I so failed that class, all right? So failed it. And what was interesting and ironic to me about the class named Logic Theory was that there was nothing logical at all about anything that I was hearing. And I certainly theorized during my days in that class of how I could not take that class, but I couldn't get out of it. If you could have taken a picture of my face, you would have just seen this 99% of the time. No idea what they're talking about. And so I confess that today because after talking to some of our group leaders and talking to some of you in here, uh, it seems to me that the book of Job might feel like logic theory to you, that there is an immensity and difficulty of understanding this book, that maybe it's a little confusing. Maybe you are theorizing how you can get out of studying this book, or maybe you already have theorized and you're just stopped. And so can I just, can I just tell you this, like, I get it. Like, I I just, I get it. I I get and understand the difficulty that that comes with reading a book like Job, this ancient form of poetry and its structure. It's not easy to read. I I get the complications and the long-winded redundancy that happens by some of the friends here that you're just like, hey, I get you. Let's move on. This chapter could have been a sentence long here. 
And I understand that some of the questions in your group seem to be confusing and hard to understand. So here, here's, here's what I need you to know. I need you to know that you're not alone. My fear would be that anyone would believe that they're not smart enough to understand God's word. That you would think that you're not smart enough to understand Job or any other scripture. And so I want you to believe me when I say this, that you're not alone. Everyone who reads Job or reads any portion of scripture has to struggle with it. There is no one that can read a text and get its meaning fully the first time that they read it. You need to know that I spend 30, sometimes 40 hours just reading these things and breaking them down to be able to teach them. This isn't easy for me. And so know that it's not about special knowledge, it's not about divine interpretation, but it's more about time. It's more about faithfulness. It's more about wrestling. It's more about struggling with this beautiful Word of God. This book, our Bible, is not like any other book that you would find on Amazon or in Barnes and Nobles. This book just doesn't lay there to inform you. It doesn't lay there just to teach you. This book begs to grapple with you. The author of the book of Hebrews writes that the Word of God is living and active, that it is sharper than a two-edged sword. There is motion. There is something about our word that's alive in its words, in its pages. Something that fights with us. If these scriptures were dead, the truth and the wisdom in them would not compel or demand heart change that God so wants from us. And so these texts, they battle with us for us. They are living. Our word fights with us, for us. And so it's so crucial that we are near it and in it for it to press on us, to change us, to wrestle with us. The book of Job has more questions than it does answers. And that is precisely the reason that we picked it. That is precisely the reason that we picked it. Because it is the posture of our life that we have to get to when we read Scripture that we just don't interpret and apply, but that we just wrestle and struggle. And Job doesn't allow us to come to many conclusions. It forces us to wrestle and struggle. And so here's what I want you to know about me that's true for me, and I I don't think it's unique for me. Uh, I just want to tell you, I know this is going to seem unrelated, but it will apply, I promise. Uh, I just want to tell you the truth about my eating habits, um, okay? Uh, it's not related, it's related. Uh, I, I would say this, I would tell you this, I default to what's easy. And I don't think that's true of just me. I default to what's easy. So uh, I would just take a guess, there's not many of us in here that live on a farm where we grow and raise our own food. Many of us do. Well, I'm not saying, a few of you do, I know a few of you. Most of us rely on a diet of heavily processed food. We consume food that's been processed and made for us. And the fight amongst the manufacturers and the producers of that food to gain market share is not that they are fighting over making those foods more organic and nutritious. It is that they're fighting to make those foods taste better. They want you to buy their food because you like the way it tastes. 
And in it, if we are honest, we have become addicted to the taste of food. We're addicted to food that tastes good, that makes us feel comfort. And those things that we know to be good for us and nutritious and healthy, we don't eat them because they don't taste good. We love to live in a world where both were true, but we don't often find that. And so here's just a rhetorical question. You don't have to answer it. Would you be healthier if you grew and raised your own food? Like, there's no doubt. There's no doubt that you would be healthier if you grew and raised your own food. There would be massive medical issues in our lives that would be eradicated by simply choosing to eat things that we grow and raise. I'm not putting a blanket statement. There's lots of complexity in the medical world. I'm not saying all of your choices and food are to blame for medical things, but a lot of them are. And so I say that to go here. We don't have attitudes and preferences that are siloed in our lives. Our attitudes and behavior, they permeate themselves in, in almost every capacity in our life. And I would say that when it comes to reading Scripture, we share some commonalities with our eating habits. What do we want? We want easy. I want easy. And so when it comes to the Bible, we want people to process and condense this for us. We want people to tell us what it says. And if we know anything about our nature, we're not asking them to process this in a healthy and organic way. Naturally, we want people to process and condense this in a way that tastes better. We want people to sweeten the word. People to add more robust flavors so it tastes better. That it tastes good, that it feel good, good, feels good. And I will just tell you as a teacher, like the pressure on me in this, for some reason, there's a competitive church market. The pressure that can come on pastor is to sweeten up the word of God and condense it in a way that it tastes really good to people so they keep coming back. And so that is where we lean. We want to go to places and hear teachers that make us feel good by teaching us a word that tastes good. And certainly you may say, well, that could be a good thing. We could get addicted to God's truth. Yes, except for it's not the truth. It's a product that is sort of like the truth. It's like Sunny D. <laughs> it's nasty. It's sort of like orange juice. Sorry, Sunny D lovers in here. It's sort of like orange juice, but it's not. We talked last week about the dangerous place we put in ourselves into that we see in the three friends where they are almost true. Sometimes it would be better not to be true at all because at least people didn't believe you. But it's a dangerous place to be almost true. We want a product that tastes good. Some years ago, I was with uh, a student who struggled in just, just being healthy. And I was taking him home, and I just, I, f I felt compelled. I don't know why. I just wanted to, I wanted to love him. And so I, I just, I knew his home life wasn't good, and so I just asked a, a, a generic probing question. It was a really dumb question. I just said, hey, do you eat fruit at home? And, and he, he, he looked at me, and he said, ah. And so I just started listening. I was like, do you eat bananas? 
No. Apples? No. Oranges? No, not really. Pineapple? And then it got silent. And then all of a sudden, he just popped up. Oh, I know. I do. I know what I eat. Fruit-wise, we eat cherries. And I was like, oh, okay. So you get the bulk cherries, like the Bing cherries. You eat them with the pitch, and you have to spit them out. And he said, no. We eat the cherries that come in the can. The maraschino cherries that come, that come in that heavy flavor, with that heavy sugar in it. And man, like, my heart broke for this kid. He had nobody fighting for him. Nobody teaching him. But listen, are we that different than my friend? I carry a lot of his similarities. I want things that taste good. I want things that feel good. So friends, we prefer our scriptures, our truth, to be processed in a way that they taste better. And just like our food, all of us would be far healthier and wiser if we grew and fed ourselves. We would be far better. We have to wrestle and struggle with these scriptures for our own well-being and our own health. But more than that, we need to struggle and wrestle with these scriptures because the aim of the Bible is to conquer us in our sinful condition that makes me say that this life is more about me than anyone else. We read scripture in a way that we struggle and wrestle so that we are conquered. In the Old Testament, there's a story in Genesis about two twin brothers named Jacob and Esau. On their father Isaac's deathbed, these twins, Esau's the oldest. Isaac wants to give the birthright, the blessing to Esau because he's the oldest, but Jacob comes in and you know the story, he steals the blessing. Esau hears of this, and he vows to kill Jacob. And so Rebekah tells Jacob, you got to get away. Esau's going to kill you. And so he flees. And in his fear and in his fleeing, there is a story in Genesis 32 that one night Jacob is encountered by a man that comes upon him and wrestles him. And in Genesis 32, it says that they wrestled all night. And in those texts, we learn that that's not just a man. It's God. God himself is wrestling with Esau all night. Supernaturally, in a moment, he could have defeated him. But just before daybreak, Jacob, defeated and clinging to God, this God-man, begs God for a blessing. Jacob, in the longevity of a struggle, in his grappling, in this grueling, comes to a place where he's conquered. And in his humility, in his submission, he begs God for a blessing. And what was formed out of that wrestling with God was a new identity for Jacob. Jacob would become to be known as Israel. And in that moment, in his wrestling, God restored peace for that moment between Jacob and Esau. Jacob would have never had those blessings if he did not personally wrestle with God if he depended on somebody else to do it for him. And we are no different. There is an invaluable lesson that we must learn in the story of Jacob and Esau. Probably the most important truth outside of the gospel of Christ and our forgiveness of sins. 
And the commentary writer, David Guzik, writes that truth this way. And I want to put it on the board and read it here today. He says that there is an invaluable place for every one of us to come to where God conquers us. There is something to be said for every man or woman doing their wrestling with God and then acknowledging God's greatness after having been defeated. We must know we serve a God who is greater than us and we cannot conquer much of anything until he conquers us. These words... They echo what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, when Paul writes that anyone let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he might become wise. And so look, I, I understand that this book of Job is difficult. I, I understand that it's intimidating. I understand that the Bible is intimidating in a whole. Its wisdom does not roll over for us. Please understand that God, in all of his love for his creation, gave us a living world word that wrestles with us, that pierces us, that humbles us, that conquers us, not in a way that we are defeated or that we are hopeless, but it conquers us in a way that we find better and deeper wisdom and truth about this life, that we see God as more beautiful and better than what we naturally are inclined to see. And know that you don't have to struggle with reading this text alone. That's why we made groups that you can come in and process this. The concern that I have for all who follow Jesus, everyone who follows Jesus, that if we don't wrestle with this word, if we don't struggle with this word, that if we don't chew and think on this word, we will find ourselves into two polarized camps where the truth of God will be condensed into a form that brings entertainment. We will search out music and people and places that feel good. Or if we are not wrestling and struggling with God's word, that we will go to places that teach the word of God in a way that leads us to moralism and legalism and hatred. But if we are near the word, if we are near it and in it, we could never come to a place where we would see that my life is about my happiness and my comfort and my pleasure. If we are wrestling with this word, we could never come to a place where empathy and compassion are not attributes in our lives. We would never come to a place where we let the voice of politics outweigh the voice of Jesus. We would never come to a gospel that's more about fear than it is about grace. And so we struggle with this word not because it's hard, because it changes us. It conquers us. When we chew on these scriptures, the deeper, more important things in our life are developed and ingrained. Things that are deeper than our feelings and our emotions. Things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-controls. Those things are made new in us as the Word of God and the Spirit actively engage in our lives those things would be known in greater doses to the people around us, that they would see God. And so, look, I, I don't say these things because I'm trying to be critical. I'm not, uh, like, I'm not accusing anyone of anything in here. I'm not saying these things because I'm disappointed. I'm saying these things because it's a loving concern that if we are going to be a church that is for the city, making 
much about the name of Christ, then we have to be Christians that are for Christ. We can't be Christ followers that are for me. I can't be for myself. And look, I'm not, I'm not better than you. I'm not better than you. I have to repent and I have to confess of the selfishness and the wrongdoing in my own heart and in my own life. But let us grapple with this word because it is the tool that God uses most to bring us closer, his heart and his wisdom. It's the way that he changes us. This living and active word cuts, it shapes, it molds us, it conquers us. We must grow and feed ourselves. If we don't, we get in all sorts of crazy places. And so that's what my heart wants to say today with all love and truth for us to consider. And so let's turn to Job here for just a little bit. We are in the midst of three conversations between Job and his friends. We talked about one round of debates. This week we're in two rounds, the second round, and next week we're in the third round. So because we're in the middle of this, we can defer a lot of this wisdom into next week. So we're going to sort of be short on Job today. But I want to walk into a summary that I m- might be proved to be helpful for you in, in, in understanding this. Uh, that it might help you gain some traction in, in reading this. What we know about Job is that he is a blameless, upright man that turns away from evil. He's a great dude, and he is allowed by God to suffer at the hands of the adversary, Satan, because Satan believes that Job only loves God because of the protection and the prosperity that he brings to him. And so God allows it, and this wager, as you could see it, between God and Satan is only known to those two, maybe some people in the heavenly courts. Job doesn't know it, and his three friends don't know it. They don't know why Job is suffering. They only presume that they know. They presume that they know. Now, what I want us to see is this, is that Job's friends don't innately have different logic and wisdom than Job has. In fact, it would be safe to believe that Job and these friends have lots in common. If you are a friend of somebody that you go to them and you mourn with them after the struggles of life, you're a good friend and there's common ground to be found there. And we note that because the struggle with Job and his understanding that he didn't do anything wrong and the the fight between Eliphaz and Zophar and Bildad the Great and presuming that he had done more. What is more frustrating probably to these friends is their belief that Job would have said these things exactly if if for the fact that Job is in the struggle. Job has changed. These men have a system. We talked about that system last week a little bit. They have a system that says good things, obedient things are rewarded and wicked, bad things are destroyed. And Job would have ascribed to that sort of theology in chapter 1. But here we are in chapter 14, and his theology has met his experience, and he can't quite make the same statements that he used to. He's lost. He's confused. And it proves frustrating for all of them. And so last week we said that their system is built on a few absolutes. And we'll just review those absolutes. Their system... 
of Job and these three friends are built on this. God is holy. God is in control. God is just and fair. These are true. These are right. Like We uphold these things today. It's not the system's absolutes that are wrong. It's how they believe that those absolutes will be played out on earth. And so this is important. We must know that systems will always show where failures and flaws are. Systems will always show weak spots. It's true in industry, it's true in engineering, and it's true in spirituality. This theological system, the one that Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar have, and even the one that Job once proclaimed, this system proves us to be flawed. It proves us to be sinners. Those absolutes convey to all of us that we are not as good as God, that we are sinners, that we are nothing compared to Him, and He is better. But the critical piece in this for all gentlemen is a piece they can't see, and that piece is grace. They do not know grace. They cannot see grace. Christopher Ashe, in his commentary on Job, writes this, that the lesson of the system is simple. This proves you are a sinner. Wherever grace is denied, cruelty follows. Wherever grace is denied, cruelty follows. These men think they have all the answers. They know it all, despite the fact they have massive, massive holes in their theology, holes that we talked about last week. There's no room in their lives for something outside of their perspective. There's no room for complexity in the story in front of them. And so we see them rain down judgment and anger on their friend. And it's a place that we can quickly get to if we believe that we know everything. Grace says you don't get what you deserved. The grace of Christ says that you don't get what you deserve. And that goes good for us, but also can be bad, that we don't understand why good people get something that they didn't deserve, why good people get bad to them. It's to understand that I don't know all the reasons why things happen. And Job is going to hint at the hope of grace in the future in his conversations in these next rounds. It's the missing ingredient. And so just know that in this chapter, in, in these, two, these chunks of chapter, Things have changed with his friends. They have gone from frustrated and angry and seeing him as stupid in chapters 4 through 14. Now in chapters 15 through 21, Job's friends see him as dangerous. He's no longer stupid. He's dangerous. To be stupid implies you're going to harm yourself. To be dangerous means that you're going to harm other people. And they believe that Job's words are going to harm other people. They have seen Job differently. Where in chapters 4 through 14, they were concerned that Job, for Job that, his, that judgment would fall upon him. In these chapters, they pretty much say, you're doomed to hell. Job, you're doomed to hell. And so Job's words are no longer folly to him. They've brought condemnation, not just on himself, but all who might hear it. And so let's pick up some text here in Job 15. This is from Eliphaz. He says, but you are doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God for your iniquity teaches your mouth and you chose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouths condemn you and not I. Your own lips 
testify against you. Now, where in earlier chapters, Job's friends were trying to figure out what was causing his struggle, struggles and what was causing his trauma, they have found the proverbial legs to stand on finally. They see Job's condemnation being connected to his words. Your words have brought you condemnation and suffering. And what sort of screams out of these seven chapters here is that these group of friends feel like they're right to be angry. Because in their mind, they're angry for God. They're angry for God. They believe that God would be absolutely offended, horrified at hearing the words of Job. And so because God would be angry, they're going to be angry. And so listen, I don't want to eliminate the possibility that there is righteous anger. There is. There is righteous anger. I believe that there are things that we might and should be angry about. The problem is, is that there's so much to be angry about in the world that we often mistake our anger as righteous when that anger has simply been created by fear. We fear change and we fear not being useful. We fear not being in control. And that creates anger. And sometimes as a Christian, we can bring that anger to God and sort of justify it. But very seldom does God's purposes get advanced through indignation, through angry indignation. I I think something that we must be careful about is, is justifying our anger in front of God, something that these friends probably needed to hear. And so uh, I'm going to bring this together in, in Job 15 through 21. I'm going to bring this together by, by looking at some of these words of Job. This is how we're going to close. We're going to see in the future that Job's going to choose some very bad paths. The friends are going to keep doing the same thing that they're doing. What I do is I want to walk closely to the hope that Job is proclaiming here in these chapters. If we look at Job 16, in Job 16, verses 20 through 21, he says, my friends scorn me, my eyes pour out tears to God, that he would argue the case of man with God, as a son of man does with his neighbor. For when a few years have come, I shall go the way from which I shall not return. Do you see, Job says that, I, that he would argue the case of, man, of a man with God. Job is longing for something that will be true someday. A longing that will bring him hope that someday that there would be one that would testify about him to God. That there would be one that would intercede on his behalf. And in chapter 19, we see him give this person a name. In chapter 19 of Job, he says this, For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, and at the last, he will send upon the earth. He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Maybe a very familiar passage to many of you. But what is beautiful and important for us to see in that passage is the nature in which Job contends his Redeemer. He says that his Redeemer is alive and that his interceder will someday stand upon the earth. And that when he dies, that that Redeemer will be sight. A Redeemer that has always lived that will come to earth, and then that will be there when I die. Who does that sound a lot like? 
That's Jesus. Job has a vision of what God would do through his son. And in this, we see hope in Job. Today, we have that as foundational truth. To Job, that would be a hopeful wishing. Paul writes in Romans 8, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed is interceding for us. How blessed are we that no matter the season, no matter the situation, no matter the suffering, that we have Jesus Christ who is actively interceding with God on our behalf. That he in this moment is praying for us to the Father. That we have a Christ that calls us upwards out of our circumstances and into his hope by our faith. Job wanted it, but did not have it. We have it, but will we trust it? We have it, but will we trust it? And that, friends, is the cry of the book of Job that we will get to. That there are things that you're not going to know about. There are things that are going to happen that are going to be difficult in your life. That struggles are going to come your way. But are you going to trust the God who is higher and better and greater than us? Will we trust that? Or will we trust ourselves? That is the question that Job leaves us with here. Would you pray with me? Father, we just come before you today. Lord, there's just lots to take in. But Lord, my heart's desire in all of this is that we would see Job not as an obstacle that just is trying to bring me down and, and a, too difficult for me to understand, but Lord, that you would teach us a posture of wrestling and struggling that we would be near and in the word of God, that you would use it to change us, that you would wrestle with our condition of sin, that you would conquer us through your word, that we would see you as better and more beautiful than we are inclined to believe. And so, Lord, will you use your truth today? Will you help us to see our actions and our behaviors and our choices and our preferences for things that taste good? And God, will you give us the boldness and the courage and the self-control through your spirit, Lord, to walk things towards things that are healthier and organic, that we might come to a place where we are growing and feeding ourselves, that we are active participants in our salvation. And so, Jesus, we pray these things in your precious and beautiful name. Amen.